thirsty? You've come to the right place to wet your whistle. It's the Liquid Lifestyle with Ryan McGarrian, a full hour of liquid refreshment. Now, here's Ryan. Very happy Saturday to you, my thirsty listener, where you are once again riding the earth, listening to the Liquid Lifestyle here on the Radio Northwest Network. I, of course, am your host and on-air bartender, Ryan McGarrian. And if you haven't joined us before, again, the Liquid Lifestyle is a broadcast dedicated to interviews, discussions, commentary, all developed to help you make the very, very best of each and every one of your future potent potable beverage opportunities, both here in the Pacific Northwest and far, far beyond. And uh, it is another glorious day here in the Rose City, and I'm stoked to have a good buddy of mine uh, calling in and hanging out with us from uh, San Francisco, uh, Doug and McDonald. What's happening, man? Hey, good afternoon, Ryan. Such a pleasure to be here. I'm actually at Cantina, my bar, right now, sitting in the lounge. Excited to have a chat. Uh, awesome, man. You have a frosty Pisco Sour there sitting next to you by chance? <laughs> I actually have nothing frosty. Oh, yeah. It's a little bit early for something like that, I think, huh? Nah, no, nah, we're, we're pretty good. I've always said that uh, the palate is always sharpest before 11 a.m., and I actually get a lot of my quality recipe development done because my palate is so sharp. That may not be healthy or something you want to suggest to anybody, but, uh, but there's that. So... You know, today I'm excited to talk, not only, not only talk to Duggan, but to, to really tell you, to let him tell you his story. And he's one of the few bartenders in the history of the craft to have made the jump from, yes, bartender to bar owner, and then finally to uh, spirit brand developer and owner. He is the proud papa of Encanto Pisco, and I'm certain that many of you have no clue what Pisco is. And I'm not going to spoil the surprise. I'm going to let him do all the talking. But uh, I guess the first question I got for you, my man, is, uh, you know, I'd love you to just let's just let's just start at the beginning of your industry journey. You know, I know we met at the Red Redwood Room in San Francisco maybe 10, 10 years ago. And and, um, you know, it was really you, you, you have such great presence and uh, you were you were so passionate from the very beginning. What is your what did that journey look like from bartender to bar owner and then on to spirit brand developer? Hey, Ryan, thank you for asking. Uh, I, you know, I think that it was, I think we met at the Reddit room at least a dozen years ago yeah. because, you know, I've already opened Cantina for eight years. So it was, I think it was at least five years prior to that. Wow, we're getting uh, old, man. We, you know, sort of known each other. Um, but I consider myself to be a serial entrepreneur and the subject, you know, that I have, you know, called the most passion, the most expertise on is frankly booze, right? <laughs> and so to... You know, meander my way up, you know, from the woods of being a bar back and into tending and then, you know, running bars and then, you know, into entrepreneurship. And, and I consider that, you know, consulting and working with uh, spirits companies and helping other bars and restaurants get their programs going, uh, then to launching Encanto, uh, you know, amongst other endeavors. Um, I just want to keep doing more and I'm having a good time doing it. And I, and I look for projects and I look for opportunities and brands that are frankly exciting, uh, that have a tremendous amount of challenge to them. Um, you know, I'm not interested. You'll never see me, you know, starting a vodka brand, uh, nothing against vodka, but it's just not interesting or exciting to me. I look for underdog opportunities that then have, uh, really don't have a ceiling on them. Something that's going to have a lot of fun and something that's also going to teach me, uh, along the way. 
Yeah, you know, one thing, I, we definitely share that in common. I love trying to bring new ideas and products and bars to the intellectual space. It's just fun to, like, not only bring a brand to market like Encanto or with me, Aviation Gin, but to bring a brand that, like, starts a conversation that, you know, that, you know, brings a wider experience. And that's something you've definitely done with Cantina. Uh, you know, I remember, uh, you know, you won that uh, award in Food and Wine magazine. And, and I remember that you uh, were famous for the squid ink martini that you were doing. I think you were, what restaurant was that? And what the heck was that, man? Oh, gosh, that was years ago. See, that was like 2005, and uh, it was the Triple X Martini. That's right. Uh, not a porn reference, but just because it was extra dirty. Yeah. Uh, well, then, it well, had come on. And, and, you know, and I had some fun with it, right? Yes, you did. Uh, I was also putting, you know, I acknowledge the fact that a, you know, a, a dirty martini has a high level of salinity, right, due to the olive juice in it. Well, so I was playing on riffs with salt, and now, of course, you see salt popping up in many cocktails. Everywhere. Not on the rim, but within that, right? Because salt punches flavor, just like, you know, alcohol and sugar do, or when you're cooking something, you know, the higher you bring it up to a temperature, it can actually punch flavor to get to that right temperature. Right. Um, so that's what happened uh, with food and wine. You know, and I think food and wine appreciated that there was, look, there was a bit of whimsy there. You know, I wasn't afraid to uh, to take a risk and put squid ink in my glass, but also to call it something that was a bit racy. Yeah, dude, I remember that picture with that uh, vial you had squirting. Your hair was epic that day when uh, <laughs> when you were taking well, that picture. I, I did not get a full night's sleep, and uh, you know that 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 photo shoot did happen uh, in New York City, and so uh, I had a good time the night before running around with everybody, and uh, that that photo is actually on the wall of. Um, editor Dana Cowan's uh, office at Food & Wine to this day. You know what? That's so cool, man. I actually remember, yeah, you were with uh, our buddy Lucy Brennan that night. I remember getting a text that you guys were at Pegu Club. I was so jealous, man. I could just sense that that debauchery was just uh, ensuing and you guys were having a great time. So I actually want to shift our conversation a little bit. Once again, we are speaking to Doug and McDonald, the proprietor uh, of Cantina uh, and the developer of Encanto Pisco. And that gives me just a great segue into uh, you talking about the Spirit Pisco. You know, I'd love it if you would just lead us into a short tutorial of, of Pisco as a category and in a spirit before we move on to talking about your contribution. Oh, absolutely. I'd be, I'd be so honored. You know, it, it, look, it begins, it begins with me with having a, a historical importance in the place of San Francisco, right? And frankly, San Francisco is the spiritual birthplace of Pisco. And that's whether that's coming from you know, uh, the Southern Hemisphere as this single distilled grape spirit, or, as I learned, uh, is that Pisco was actually the colloquial term for grape spirit in early California, because as you know, California arose out of Latin America. It was previously Mexico, previously the Viceroyalty of New Spain, and the word brandy didn't exist until after 1849, right? So Pisco was actually this colloquial expression on um, this preferred expression. No one was actually saying aguardiente de vino, the grape distiller of wine. They were calling it Pisco, even in Mexico as well. And that was a really cool historic revelation for me to find out. Uh, and so to get involved with creating Pisco down in Peru was just this absolutely wonderful, you know, intersection of, of history and personal journey for me. And, uh, you know, my role in going down there is I help pick wines, I help do the fermentation, and I distill it. And that's, frankly, as simple a definition uh, for Pisco as there is. You pick grapes, you make wine, you distill it. Now, of course, it's a bit more complicated than that, but that's, in essence, uh, what Pisco is. 
Oh, that's so cool, man. You, you know, I the what you, that information you just kicked out about Pisco kind of being a wider term for any kind of brandy on the West Coast, you know, a couple hundred years ago. I, you know, you know me, I'm a, I'm a bit of a geek for this stuff. I had no idea that was the case. So like essentially any distilled wine floating around the, the Bay Area 150 years ago would have or might have been called Pisco? Absolutely. And it was the same thing for up and down the Pacific because everyone had come from this greater you know, Spanish-derived Latin family. And if you go back to, say, almost 500 years ago, Lima was the city of kings. It was the wealthiest place in the New World, and it had established, you know, the first vineyards and this culture of great distillation. So, and what was that called? It was all called Pisco because the best stuff was coming from this very specific valley, right? So in as much as, say, the expression Kentucky Street Bourbon has been shortened to bourbon, or all sparkling wine still is, you know, colloquially referred to as champagne. Pisco became that expression, right? So up and down the Pacific, if you were drinking a, a grape distillate, it was referred to as Pisco. Oh, my gosh. That's such a revelation, man. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of commentary in the industry about whether Peruvian Pisco uh, or Chilean Pisco should hold the title to, like, the, the authentic Pisco. Is that something that uh, you can shed some light on? Hey, great question, and it kind of seems like a lot of gossip, doesn't it? Peru versus Chile. You're not unlike going on TMZ and to see who, you know, Rihanna has slept with over the weekend. Sorry, Rihanna. Uh, but, you know, they, all, they were the same country for 300 years, the Viceroyalty of Peru. Peru and Chile have the same grandparents. They have the same tradition, but they broke up in the 19th century, and now they both produce Pisco, but in slightly different ways. And when we come back, sorry to jump over you there, Doug, and we're, uh, we're going to jump out real quick, but we will talk about what makes Peruvian Pisco unique, because that is the style that, uh, that you make. We'll be right back. And welcome back to the Liquid Lifestyle. We, again, are with Doug and McDonald, bartender extraordinaire out of San Francisco and uh, the uh, co-founder, uh, distiller, uh, and uh, just overall master of Encanto Pisco. And we've been having a super killer, I think, uh, intellectual discussion about Pisco itself. Again, it is a uh, spirit native to South America, and Duggan has been... Uh, giving us that tutorial, and we were speaking at the end of the last segment again about the differences uh, or the perspective of whether or not Pisco is a Peruvian spirit specifically or a Chilean spirit specifically. You know, I actually just want to jump right in, keep moving down the road. You make a Peruvian Pisco, and I know they have very stringent laws. They're very proud of their spirit. There's a lot of accountability. Tell me about Peruvian Pisco, Duggan. Well, hey, thanks for asking, Ryan. Uh, you know, this spirit was first distilled in the vice royalty of Peru, right, which was most of South America. It was two-thirds of the continent. We're, and we're, we're looking at the mid-1500s. And what's really uniquely special about the DOC, that's the governing board of Peru, today is that they have kept Pisco in, like, an intellectual vacuum. They have refused to go forward and say, hey, let's allow a column still or let's uh, triple distill, or you know what, let's water back, or let's add flavoring, or let's throw it in barrels, because none of that stuff is allowed. So it's this very simple, 
terroir-driven spirit, which is made in the way that it was made hundreds of years ago, if not how, you know, Aguardiente de Vino, the distillate of wine, was made in Jerez in southern Spain, you know, a thousand years before that. Okay. And, you know, that leads us straight to a conversation about your your baby, man. I mean, let's just start out with, I mean, the name Encanto, where does that come from? Oh, man, it's mystical. It's fun. Uh, you know, the, the full title of our brand is Campo de Encanto, and it means, you know, field of enchantment. Uh, or it can mean field of magic. Or it can mean, you know, field of love. Because uh, the word, you know, Encanto has all these different meanings. Love, magic, power, all these wonderful associations. And for me and for my business partners, you know, running through a vineyard and then pulling out this amazing distillate out of it has all of that sort of incantatory powers. It has magic for us. And frankly, it's something that we're in love with. Oh, man. How about field of deliciousness, dude? You know I love that term. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> that's, our, that's our goal. We, uh, we, we love it when we can make something delicious, and then it in turn inspires, you know, our, our fellow cocktail lovers, fellow bartenders to shake their own uh, delicious cocktail. Nicely done. You know what would be, you know be fun? I want you to kind of paint a picture for us. What is the, just from the field into the distillery into the bottle? Can you kind of walk us through the production of Encanto Pisco? Yeah, absolutely. So it has to be harvested by hand, right? So there's, no, there's nothing really mechanized, very little that's mechanized about producing Pisco, right? So we harvest the grapes by hand. We throw the clusters into dairy crates, and then we load up this truck, and then we drive it uh, to the winery slash distillery because everything is one and the same down there, right? Oh. The winery and distillery is always the same place in Peru. Um, then we do throw it through one of the only machines, right, which is the destemmer, right, because you don't want to be having all your schmutz and pips and stems uh, in your fermentation. Okay, so once you've done that, you start to slowly crush your grapes, and we do this slow, slow press. And then we do leave some of the skins on. And that, well, now, real day. quick, is that you walking around the fermentation tank, getting your, your grubby little uh, feet all over the grapes, or is this more of a mechanized situation? No, it's, it's a machine, man. Okay. It's one single machine that removed the destemmer, but then also crushes the steps in a really, really slow push. You remember that scene uh, from Return of the Jedi where the guys are stuck in the middle of that garbage pit? Oh, yeah, dude, that's Star Wars, that's Star Wars, man. Return of the Jedi, you're getting (laughs) old, man, that's Star Wars. Getting ahead of myself. Uh, It's like that, but it's even slower, okay? Okay. It happens really, really slow as the grapes are getting pressed. So you're not getting, you know, painfully extracted tannin or anything like that. Um, You know, you want to, we treat these grapes really gently, okay? Okay. And then after, uh, after the grapes sit for a little, for almost a day on some of these skins, you know, you extract a little flavor, um, then we have developed a, you know, proprietary yeast strain that, w- that was culled from a native yeast, so it, it tastes specific to this place. And so then we inoculate our wine, uh, which is not in wine, excuse me, we inoculate the grape juice to start fermentation. But fermentation is done, done in a very temperature-controlled, very low-temperature-controlled environment. And by that I mean we're in the 50s, 50 degrees, and it takes about two weeks to bring that grape juice uh, into a low alk wine, generally around 12 degrees. Okay, once that's ready, it's time to cook. Yeah, and we we load that wine into the alembic, and there you go. Then it's it's you know pisco distillation is like low and slow barbecue. Okay, you, yeah. you're not jamming it up, you're not microwaving. It's more crock pot. Okay, good. And 
You know, it takes, you know, over half a day, 16, 18 hours, depending upon which sill we're using and that run and how hot it is uh, for one run to come out, right? And we're still only talking about 1,000 liters. So you get this real gentle cooking of uh, flavors comes out, and um, there's nothing mechanized. There's no, there's very few buttons to push, and it really all depends on, you know, the man that's there at his chair or on his cot, you know, you can you know how long it's going to take, and you smell something happening, and then you say now, and that means it's time to make those cuts. Okay. That the, the stinky, gross, you know, volatile heads are are done cooking away, and it's time to save the heart. Oh, you follow heart. that until the tails. Um, after that, the the DOC says, hey, 90 days before you bottle it, you know, to allow the chemistry to calm down. But we at Encanto. Uh, this is where I step in mostly, you know, my expertise, and that's blending all the ODVs together. Okay. And so I don't really mess with it until each tank is at least a year, if not three years old. Wow. So what I want is something soft and gentle and that plays well with others. Okay. And because, for instance, in our Grand and Noble, which is our lead expression, we have five different binds, you know, three red, you know, three, two, sorry, two red, which make, you know, dark, robust red wines. They come out looking like, you know, Syrah meets Grenache. And then we have these three white wines, which are bright and aromatic huh. and have some, some, some nice acidity to them. I blend all that together to get this really complex spirit at the end, right? And to do so, I have hundreds of Eau de Vies at my disposal, all in small tanks, to really create this symphonic uh, experience. Dude, you just rocked an incredible word right there, symphonic. So much good stuff happening during this interview, uh, man, it's I, I wish everybody had had the opportunity. I wish everybody, I hope everybody has the opportunity to experience your Pisco and uh, just just learn more about this great spirit. We're talking to Doug and McDonald, developer of Pisco, uh, Encanto Pisco, and we will be jumping out and back in in just a moment. Producer Dave, bringing in the cool old school tunes today. Loving it. Once again, we're with Doug and McDonald, the developer behind Encanto Pisco. He has been um, really uh, leading us through an, a, a better understanding of what Pisco is as a spirit and specifically explaining how he makes his Pisco. Where we left off last, last segment uh, was his uh, him explaining that uh, exactly how he blends different O to V's to create the perfect blend that goes into each and every bottle. You want to want to keep want to keep going on that subject for us? Yeah, thank you. I'd love to expound on it a little bit, Ryan. Yeah. You know, so, in our Grand Noble, we've got five unique grapes, right? We've got two that you would traditionally use to make a red wine, and three to make a white wine, and it just creates this wonderful complexity, right? Cuz the red wines, the red grapes, right, which I distill, create this sort of rich uh consistency that, you know, deliver notes of chocolate and bell pepper and baking spices such as cinnamon and real grassy notes. Well, some of that is overlapped in the three different white wine distillates. What they offer is a lot of top-noted floral complexity, a lot of citrus notes. Well, you know, as I was saying, I then have these hundreds of O to V's at my disposal in our cellar to create this wonderfully huge, huge Probably complex symphonic blend, uh, and it's a massive challenge, by the way, because you know I don't know if you know this, but I work in a facility that does not have running water. 
Okay. Uh, we don't have a roof. Weird. Uh, and it's always 80 degrees. Um, the electricity goes out constantly, and uh, it's a massive challenge. But that's and that's part of why I love creating Encanto. Back at the beginning, as I talked about, I was looking for this challenge, looking for this underdog opportunity to create something special, and hopefully, you know, someday people will think that it's world class. Is that I go down in the middle of this desert, which is a fertile desert, a rich desert with 500 years of history, and here we are able to create something in a place that. Uh, does not have running water, and yet we're able to, uh, you know, deliver something that I can share with you. And now here we are, we're talking about it for all the world to hear about. Isn't that crazy, man? I mean, when I think about your journey and my journey, that here we are talking about, you know, your own Pisco. I think that's just so freaking cool. So, you know what? The thing I want to move into next is um, is just the, the the flavor profile itself. Once it's in the bottle, you get it to your house, you're there with your loved one or somebody you Maybe you don't like that. It doesn't even matter. But you're sitting there. You know, what's the best way to kind of get to know Encanto Pisco? You know, I think that like, like Encanto, like all spirits, certainly like all other Piscos, is uh, it does wonders in the tin. And I think you experience it in, the, in, a, in a cocktail that you know and love. And sure, a lot of folks out there have heard about a Pisco sour, right? That classic drink with fresh lime a little bit of sugar syrup, an egg white, yada, yada. But it also does so well in punches, you know, and or, you know, in your favorite mule, stormy, buck, uh, tall highball. And, and, of course, that's your, you know, your lime and your ginger beer thing. I think it does so well in that. And, and the reason why it does well, say certainly in, in like a punch or, or that, uh, that mule thing, is because a single distilled, a single pot distilled grape spirit offers this great array of flavors, but then you can put a lot onto it. And so I really believe in intentional mixology. So I look for, you know, additives to my cocktail that bring out the inherent cinnamon, the, the menthol, the lemon curd, uh, the verbena, and the, and the blackberry that, you know, you can find in this complex grape spirit. And then I create cocktails uh, upon those for, you know, for, the, for all those flavors. So you, what do you think? Yeah, I love it, man. I mean, you're kind of a traditionalist there. It's like, you know, some people, there's many different reasons, obviously, to mix cocktails. You know, some people are what I call reverse bartenders where they like to, uh, you know, in, you know, really amplify the modifiers and the accents. And you see a lot of bartenders of that school using vodka, and that allows the backside to shine. But, you know, you're really, you know, everything, your, your cocktails have, have always been about amplifying the base spirit, honoring it kind of worshiping, <laughs> worshiping it, so to speak. Uh, is, is that a fair assumption? You know, to a certain degree it is. I think it's mostly correct, except for the point that I don't want it to dominate. Okay. What I do want it to do is work in harmony. So I'm looking for a chorus of flavor and not just a lead singer. Okay. So I have created this band based around the lead singer, but I don't want that one note to be the loudest. It's almost as though people say, you know, when I sling them a great Encanto cocktail, they're like, it's kind of like a sleeper, a panty dropper. Like, it doesn't even taste <laughs> like there's booze in it, okay? Yeah. And that's what I want. And yet there's two, two and a half ounces, you know, of single distilled spirit in there. But all of the ingredients are working in harmony, Yeah. right? And that, and that goes back to my philosophy about blending is I just want it to be this wonderful symphony. I don't want necessarily one note to rise above the rest. I want everybody to, you know, to get along and uh, work together. Yeah, dude, I love it. I love the symphony, you know, allegory or an, an analogy. Um, you know, what uh, I'd love to talk a little bit about a specific Pisco drink because it is so uh, endemic to the 
to the San Francisco bar culture, uh, and that is the Pisco Punch. It, as far as I'm, uh, as far as I know, it was created right there in downtown San Francisco. You know, as far as I know, the current incarnation exactly was created here uh, in downtown San Francisco. But again, our history only records sort of the English version of that. Okay. And, you know, what I was able to learn as I was researching more and more about Pisco, and, and certainly in the writing, you know, of my upcoming book, oh, Drinking the Devil's Acre, coming yeah. up September 15th, I love uh, it. is that uh, punches or ponche okay. was around with Pisco for you know, uh, many hundreds of years prior to that. And, you know, Peru became a distillate drinking culture as early as 1579 when Spain prohibited the production of wine in the New World. That's mean. That's cruel. So in the vice royalty of New Spain, a.k.a. Mexico, they started looking for something that they could ferment and distill differently, and that led them down the agave road. Well, down in Peru, they had many more vineyards planted, and the plucky Peruvians said, don't worry about it, Spain will just produce the Aguardiente event. Aguardiente de vino, meaning just the distillate, because all wine was fortified back then, right? They didn't have electricity or, you know, good storage systems. They always put a little bit of the distillate back in. Aha. And that's a preservative, right? That's that's what preserves. Yeah, okay. Right. Of course, of course, right? Yeah. Just like, you know, Pinot de Chirant or Sherry, that's how wine was consumed. Well, once you switch over to just the distillate, you got to have a way to cut it. So then they're splashing in juices and fresh fruits and stuff, and that's how the occasion of punch was enjoyed. Now, we're talking late 1500s, early 1600s now. Well, early California had the same tradition, and also many, many Peruvians came up to early San Francisco because there was the experience of mining. Right, and that's what the War of the Pacific was all about. This beef between Peru and Chile was all about mining rights. Huh. So the Peruvians knew about mining and they knew about drinking. So, in fact, this punches with pisco came from Peru and grew out of Latin America. Uh, but in this era, when you know San Francisco was the richest city in the history of the world, right, it had all this new gold. Well, talent was here. So, you know, guys like Harry Johnson and Duncan Nickel and these other ones, who were great bartenders, they, they I think, they finessed you know, this cocktail uh, to such a wonderful degree. And then it became, you know, the signature cocktail of the city for a few decades. Cool, man. And you know what I'd love? I'd love a recipe, my man, that uh, maybe some of our friends at home might be able to whip up uh, for a Pisco Punch. Ooh, that's a great, uh, that's a great one. And, you know, you definitely need to start with two fingers of Encanto. Two fingers. (laughs) All right. Uh And then... We need to get in, you know, let's say a single lime or a finger, an ounce of uh, fresh lime. And then what I use down here is what we call pineapple gum syrup. Um, If you don't have that at home, what I would suggest you do is actually go do two fingers of fresh pineapple juice and then perhaps one of a sugar syrup, right, to get that sweetness and that real full, fleshy, tropical uh, pineapple feel in there. And then what I do is a, a couple dashes of bitters because, look, a Latin American cocktail has to have some spice. Right. And then uh, my signature add-on was a historical revelation. I mean, I use Lillet Rouge. Oh, wow. I just use a half ounce. And the reason for that is that the original piece of punch, as employed at the historic Bank Exchange Saloon in San Francisco, used Van Mariani in its recipe. And if you haven't heard of Van Mariani, that was the original fortified, aromatized Bordeaux wine. Predates Lillet Rouge. It was the thing. It was that everyone was drinking. It was poured in punches with abandon. It was simply referred to as Claret. Uh, It was endorsed by the Pope. 
Thomas Edison drank it regularly. You know, Tom invented a lot of things. He had a lot of energy. Well, the reason he had a lot of energy is because of one unique botanical that was in this fortified red wine from Bordeaux. It also came from Peru. Can you guess what that one botanical was? Oh, man. Wormwood? <laughs> Good guess. <laughs> Coca leaves. Coca um, naturally. That's the energetic component. Show enough. Uh, so, uh, coca leaves. You know what, uh, Duggan? We're gonna we're gonna jump out real quick. Uh, so good having you. We're with Duggan McDonald, the founder of Encanto Pisco. We're talking about the spirit. We're talking about its mixability. And coming up, we're gonna talk a little bit about his forthcoming book. Looking forward to it. And welcome back to the Liquid Lifestyle here on the Radio Northwest Network. Once again, I'm Ryan McGarry, your host. I'm with Duggan McDonald, the founder of Encanto Pisco. Man, we've been uh, we've been just taking a journey this afternoon. We've been learning all about Pisco, which is uh, again the native one, a native spirit to South America. So much history being um, you know laid on us, and we've been talking about Pisco's mixability. Uh, but I want to, you know, Duggan, I tell you what, man, you've gotten a boatload of press over the year for your talent behind the bar, but few people know you as I do and that you have a deep, deep passion for your, uh, for writing and your ability to write. And mercifully, the opportunity has come upon you to release, to unleash upon the world your first tome, your first book. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Hey, thanks for asking. You know, few fewer people know that I actually... You know, first got behind the stick as a bar bath, Seattle's Wild Ginger, just a few nights a week because I figured, well, I can do this job in my sleep, wrong, and it will allow me to uh, have time to write during the day. And, uh, you know, here I am, well, you know, 16 years later, and uh, Drinking the Devil's Acre will be out in a few months. And what Drinking the Devil's Acre is, it's it encompasses the journey that I was just chatting about, like you know, my love uh, for specific spirits and how they relate uh, to this city that I love, San Francisco. Uh, it's a hybrid book, meaning it's a lot of memoir, but it's also a lot of history. And I, I organized the book around these 25 drinks that let's call it cano- let's call them canonical, let's call them celebrated, sacred, conceived. Uh, in San Francisco, uh, whether it's like, you know, Henry Africa's Lemon Drop, which was created in the 70s, or Trader Vic's Mai Tai, or just the Negroni, which is just wholly loved and embraced in the North Beach neighborhood, and then how that spread throughout the city and perhaps throughout the country. Uh, I offer little bits of, uh, you know, vignettes and personal revelations on them, as well as, you know, historical anecdotes uh, that I found during my research. Uh, and frankly, operating Cantina for almost a decade now, I was just really in love with sharing the local stories about local drinks. Uh, again, whether they were conceived here or not doesn't really matter. It's just that they've been embraced here. And I wanted to talk about that. Oh, that's so cool, man. One thing, you know, as somebody who trains bartenders, it just it's so powerful to share authentic history and stories. To me, that's where that's where connection comes from in general, in life and anything. Even when you're say you're dating somebody, it's that it's knowing their story, getting way back and deep into the nitty gritty, which really makes that connection. So it sounds like that 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 your book can do that for both the bartender and uh, and enthusiast alike. 
I hope so, man. I hope so. You know, I, I, there is enough culinary wisdom in there, you know, some revelations some things that I've been doing behind the stick and how I blend spirits and that sort of thing. But I think it will apply to, you know, the more geeky audience. But it's narrative-driven. It's not recipe, nor is it technique-driven. And so I really hope that uh, folks from around the world get into it. Um, it's a story that centers itself on San Francisco, but, you know, you've been to this city a lot of times and had a great time and a great drink, as have many millions of people. But it also applies to, you know, those who have a special place in their heart. And whether it is Portland or Paris or Poughkeepsie, uh, you know, if you love a particular place, you're going to appreciate uh, what's on the page of Drinking the Devil's Acre. Dude, I can't wait to get inside that book, man. When uh, when is the when is the publish date? September fifteenth, but you can order it right now. You can pre-order it on Amazon, and it will be in your mailbox on the very first date of its publication, September fifteenth. It'll be in your hand. So, I would really appreciate if folks want to go ahead and pre-order it now. Drinking the Devil's Acre on Amazon.com. Well said, man. Stoked, man. You just got to be so stoked that you that you have this opportunity, huh? I am beyond delighted, and beyond I'm so delighted. happy to, you know, to continue this conversation. You know, with everybody, all these things that I've been thinking about and experiencing for many years, and now I get to share them with my friends and family and, you know, new people that I even have yet to meet. It's going to be great. That's awesome, man. Once again, you are listening to The Liquid Lifestyle on the Radio Northwest Network, and we're talking to Duggan McDonald, proprietor uh, of Cantina, developer of Encanto Pisco, and the author of the upcoming book. What was the name of that book one more time? Drinking the Devil's Acre. Drinking the Devil's Acre. I tell you what, we, uh, we're we wrapping up here. we got about 30 seconds, man. Will you throw out five must-see cocktail bars for our listeners to hit when they are traveling south from Portland to the Bay Area? Oh, fantastic. You know, there's so many great bars. But look, right now there's great work uh, that's happening, of course, at the old-school Comstock Saloon. Uh, a new Spanish restaurant just opened up called Ache. That's double A T X E, a Spanish Ache. spot. They've got this killer list uh, that's really, really amazing. Uh, beyond cocktails, though, Ryan, there's a lot of great beer bars, a lot of great wine programs are happening. And I, I'm so excited. And then, of course, in the middle of August, we've got the Craft Spirits Carnival. Oh, boy. Which that is happening dangerous. at Fort Mason. So if you're coming down to San Francisco in, in, in August, if you happen to be here at the same time as the Craft Spirits Carnival. Awesome, man. Dude, I could not have been more excited to have chatted with you for the last hour. Uh, to all my listeners, once again, always uh, be sure to drink your best, and we'll uh, be back at you soon. <laughs>